Welcome to Newer Church with Corey Turner. We pray you encounter God and become more like Jesus through this message. To find out more, visit us at numa.church. And why don't you go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's such an honor to uh, have guests and visitors here today. Uh, we had an incredible young adults retreat uh, on the weekend. And some of you are here who are a part of that. And uh, I'm just so pleased with what God's doing in our kids, youth, young adult ministries right across the church. And Jesus is building his church. And Disciple the Nations is uh, such a significant part of who we are as a church, both historically, currently, and for the future. And uh, Disciple the Nations is, as you've already heard, our global mission ministry of the church. And for nearly 100 years, we've been praying, we've been giving, and we've been going to different parts of the world, unreached people groups. We have 19 global mission partners, uh, people who are, uh, some of them, completely dependent upon and reliant upon our generosity and upon our commitment to them. Others uh, have uh, lived bivocationally and have taken up the mantle and responsibility to be obedient to what God's asked them to do. And so today we're going to come around the Word of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians is almost like a bit of a, a left-hand turn in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And uh, he's writing to them, addressing different issues, issues of division, uh, issues of, of uh, um, arrogance as it applies to spirituality and all sorts of things. And then in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he begins to talk about not only the heart of partnering with Global Mission, but also an encouragement to give generously to the work that God has called us to. And so let's read together. It says in verse one, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, verse 6, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, our sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well. How many of us know it's good to start something? It's better to finish. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. And he's talking about as you started to, to honour God in giving and being generous. Hey, complete that work. Finish what the Lord has started through you. 
so that your readiness, verse 11, in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what they don't have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness or equity, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. In other words, those who are strong ought to bear, the Scriptures say, with the failings or the lack of the weak. Um, that, that applies on a lot of different levels. And then he says, um, uh, so that your abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. It was in 1956 that a man by the name of Jim Elliott and four missionaries from America flew into the jungles of Ecuador and they encountered a tribe, an orca tribe there deep in the jungle. And they'd done a lot of research, a lot of planning, had raised a lot of money. And the reason that they went is because of Jesus called to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And this orchid tribe represented an unreached people group. And they felt called to go and preach the gospel, to make disciples, to advance the kingdom. And unfortunately, after making initial contact over several weeks with this orchid tribe, uh, all five missionaries got savagely murdered and lost their lives. And two years later, the widows of each of these missionaries heard the call to take their families and relocate into the jungles of Ecuador to go to this tribe, preach the gospel and share forgiveness and God's love with them, with the very people who had actually slain their um, loved ones. After initially going there, God moved radically and all of those responsible for killing the missionaries ended up repenting of their sin, giving their lives to Jesus. And not only them, but the entire tribe got radically saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, many, many years later, one of the sons of the missionaries, Nate Saint, was on a platform back in the year 2000 with one of those responsible for killing his father and at a Billy Graham event in Amsterdam that my mum and dad had the privilege of attending, they witnessed as this son and this uh, man who was a former murderer share of the grace of God, the love of God, and the goodness of God in not only transforming his heart, but transforming an entire people group for the glory of Jesus. How many of us know it doesn't get much better than that? What would compel a person to take their kids after the grief of losing their, their partner in life, their, their loved one, and go to the same tribe that savagely murdered their family and share the love of Jesus with them. Let me tell you, the only thing that will ever do something like that is a heart that has been captured by God's love for lost people. And the truth is, all of us, most of us, won't ever jump on a plane and fly to some other part of the world and go and preach the gospel to an unreached people group like an orchid tribe in the middle of the jungle. But it doesn't remove the fact that all of us have been called to go and make disciples of all nations. 
And it's so important, and my prayer is today, that you would be captured once again, not only with God's heart, but that God's heart would compel us to action. You see, God has a dream. And and many of us haven't stopped to consider that God is a visionary. He's not only a creator, He's not only a saviour, but He's a visionary and He has a dream. And one of the best ways to understand what is God's dream, there are several passages of Scripture that will come up today, but one of those passages is by the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 14, where he says that God's dream is for the whole earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I used to think to myself, I'm not real sure whether I can trust God with my dream. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever pondered, you know, maybe if I actually lay my life down and follow Jesus that I'll have to give up my dream. I'm not sure. I'm gonna hold some of my dream back. I'm not sure that I can trust you, God, with my dream until I woke up one day out of my lunchbox and realised that that was the wrong question. The right question is, can God trust you with His dream? You see, for all of our rhetoric around talking about trusting in the Lord with all of our heart, God is looking for people to entrust His dream. He's looking for people in the earth that He will partner with. His eyes run to and fro throughout the earth, looking to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to Him. God is searching. His eyes are running to and fro. He's looking for people, for His creation, for you and I, those who are the image bearers of God, who resemble His likeness. He's looking to partner with us to establish His covenantal purposes in the earth. And many of us are trying to get God to bless our dream, bless our new initiative and our five-year goal list. And I just think one of the best advice that we could receive today is let's stop dreaming about living the dream and let's just join God in His dream. Because something tells me that when you join God in His dream where He's going, all of these other things will be added to you. God's dream is that more and more of planet Earth would look more and more like heaven. Otherwise, why would He exhort us and call us to pray like this? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that prayer about? It's a a prayer to partner with kingdom now. Thank God for the sovereign expression of the kingdom of God in creation. Thank God for kingdom eternal that we are going to live in, in the consummation at the end of the age. But I'm telling you, there is a kingdom now that is available and that is accessible, that manifests in signs, wonders and life transformation. We heard a testimony of young Zach at the baptism time where he shared and testified of the goodness of God at work in his life. I met him out in the tunnel and here he is by himself having a glory moment, a God encounter as he's recalling that what God has done in his life. Oh, may we never think that that eternity begins when we leave this life and step into the next. No, the kingdom is accessible now. Your kingdom come, your governing rule, reign and influence come now. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, many of us ask this question, what is God's will for my life? And when we ask that question, we're often sort of referring with that prayer in mind to the specific details of our life. Where should I live and what vocation should I pursue? What should I study? Who should I marry? All the, the, the important details of our lives. But actually, it's, it often comes from a place that's very individualised and is very self-focused rather than understanding that God is not only concerned about the details of our lives, but He actually is on mission across planet Earth for all of history as long as His story outworks itself throughout planet Earth, throughout the generations. God is on a mission. Now, asking God what His will is for our life, however important that is, is a little bit like trying to use a flashlight to find the natural sun. <clears throat> it's a little bit pointless because like the natural sun, God's will isn't lost. So we don't need to find it, we just need to obey it. Some of us are waiting for an audible voice when God's already given to us a holy verse. And we've just got to obey the will of God that's staring in our faces right in front of us. And all these other things will get added to us. I've discovered that if you will obey God's revealed will, the unrevealed will of all the trivial details of our lives tend to take care of itself. I remember years ago being so caught up with my dream as an adolescent, with the will of God. I, I got myself more confused than a termite and a yo-yo all over the place trying to work out what is God's will for my life? Should I do this? Should I not do that? What should I do? And, and a lot of it was this sort of feelings-based journey of searching for the will of God in my life. But when I came back to the revelation of Scripture and when I had spiritual parents in my life, Give me a cosmic kingdom eternal perspective of what God was doing on the earth and my role within it. All of a sudden, as I yielded to the Holy Spirit and presented my body as a living sacrifice and was willing to climb up on that altar and say, God, whatever, I yield myself to you. I wanna join you where you're going. I wanna keep in step with you. Some of us are trying to get the Spirit to keep in step with us, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, if we live, by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We're the ones who've got to keep up with Him. And how many of us know God is on the move? Otherwise, would He? why would He say, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations? We've got to understand God has a dream. And we've got to understand that God has a will, that He wants to be fulfilled for that dream to become a reality. You say, well, what is God's will? Second Peter 3, 9. God's will is that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so if you'll obey God's revealed will, if you'll seek first the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33, all these other things will be added to you. And I've discovered if you will prioritise the kingdom of God and you'll obey Jesus where He's going, it's amazing how well God, how capable God is at looking after you. 
you'd be amazed. He is a faithful father. He's our Jehovah Jireh, our provider. And he loves to surprise his kids. If he hasn't withheld his own son from you, why would he withhold simple, practical things in life that you need for your family? God knows exactly what your address is, what you need, where you are. What he's looking for is someone that says, God, I know that you're a faithful father. I know that I am a son or daughter of who you are. And I trust myself. I'm running after all that you've called me to. And I want to be trusted with your cosmic purposes and your cosmic mission that you have called every son and daughter to, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. How do we fulfil God's dream? We make Jesus' last command our first priority. Before Jesus ascended to the Father, He called the disciples. About 500 of them came to the, the mountain. He declared to them the famous statement that is preached all over the earth and for good reason. And He said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The question isn't where are you serving in the life of the church? The question is, who are you discipling to become a follower of Jesus? Service is a really good next step after you get saved. But the most essential, important step in our discipleship journey is not just us looking and becoming more like Jesus, but us reproducing and leading others to follow Jesus. Or may we be a church that doesn't just love Jesus for ourselves and, and get discipled for ourselves. Many people are going, who's discipling me? My question to you is, who are you? discipling and as you get and your eyes and my eyes off myself it's amazing when you start thinking about who am I discipling your self-discipleship will often take care of itself why because you'll become a self-feeder you'll lean in to the podcast you'll lean in to the teaching you'll search out those who will support you and help you and so often we live in a culture where we bring the mindset of the spirit of the world into the local church and we make it all about us. But the Lord has not called us to be a holy cruise liner where we're on a perpetual holiday all for ourselves. God has called us to be an aircraft carrier. He's called us to go to the front lines of life and ministry, to be sent out and to come back refueled, filled with the Holy Ghost, celebrating, worshipping, gathering together, but then going and making disciples of all nations. I mean, out of all the things that Jesus could have done with His authority, just think about it, all authority in heaven and on earth, in all of the universe was given to Jesus. He could have set up an earthly kingdom. I reckon His kingdom on earth, could, from an a, a, a earthly perspective or military perspective, could have been pretty amazing. It would have dwarfed the Roman Empire. He, he could have set up a business for Himself that could have definitely... Uh, dwarfed King Solomon's trillions. I mean, Jesus could have done all manner of things, but this is the heart of a true father and the heart of God. He uses his authority to empower others. And he says, go into all the world and make disciples 
of all nations. You see, between the scattering of the the nations in Genesis 11 and 12 and the healing of the nations at the end of the book, Revelation 22, there's the discipleship of the nations in Matthew 28. There is a mandate that every single one of us have been given in Genesis 1 and 2, be fruitful and multiply. That is not about just the reproduction of your biology and your physiology. That is about understanding that we are in relationship with a king who has a kingdom, who wants the whole earth to come under the governing influence of the kingdom of heaven. And the way that we fulfil that mandate to be fruitful and multiply is not just to get married and have a good time. It's actually to understand the revelation that God has called us to seek and save the lost, the last and the least and to go to the unreached people groups of the world as well as our own next door neighbour and share of the reality of the love of Jesus and God's heart with them. Is anyone getting stirred in their spirit today? You see, only asking God to bless you with a nice house and a nice car and a nice job and a nice spouse and all of those things, how many of you know that's nice? It's nice. They're all good things. They're all important things. But only asking God to bless you with those things and being content with that is selling yourself so far short of what it means to be in relationship with the Creator. It's a little bit like sitting down at a cafe table and with a billionaire, a multi-billionaire, and asking them, oh, could you please cover my cup of coffee and my little morning tea snack? It's a little bit like that. When, when, when if you're sitting down with a multi-billionaire who has the capacity not just to change your life, but to change millions of people's lives around you, you need to get your vision a little bit higher because the Bible says in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. We're we're asking God for a cup of tea when He's asking us to to, to ask Him for the nations. And we heard earlier in the 9am service, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. See, our mission as a church, our mission as believers is to advance God's kingdom across cities and nations all over the earth. I love this idea that the church doesn't have a mission. No, God's mission has a church. We are the vehicle. So often we can, how many know, we can make church the main thing, the, Let's say church-centric Christianity, churchianity. No, this exists for a greater cause. We exist for a greater cause. There's no such thing or divide between sort of Christianity that is merely about attendance and observation and Christianity that is about participation. No, if we are followers of Jesus, we're all called to pray. We're all called to give and we're all called to go. And then God anoints and appoints various fivefold leaders and graces and staff to empower and equip the church to help us and remind us of the key and important tenets of our faith and what God is calling us to. And then together we become the dwelling place of God. Together we mature into the full measure and stature of Jesus Christ as we are going to make disciples of all nations. So in 2 Corinthians chapter eight and nine, Paul is wanting to lift and elevate the Corinthians' vision of their part to play. 
in the global mission of Jesus Christ. You see, what was happening in Corinth is that there was a lot of infighting. There was a lot of dysfunction, to be honest. You read First and Second Corinthians and one saying, I follow this person and I follow that person. And, and, and they, were, they were sort of called to be a part of the family of God and yet they're acting very much like the spirit of the world. They were even using spiritual gifts as a badge of superiority to say, well, I speak in tongues and you don't, so you must be a second-class Christian. Or I do this and you don't do that, therefore there is difference and division and disunity. And, And Paul was constantly writing to get their focus back on Jesus, to get their focus back on the mission of what it is that God had called them to. You see, what was happening is that the very epicentre of the expansion of Christianity back in the day was in Jerusalem. But now Jerusalem is suffering. There is persecution. There is a famine that's impacting Jerusalem and Judea. And now believers at the front line of mission are suffering. And so Paul writes to Corinth and says, hey guys, it's time we got our eyes off ourselves and we got our eyes onto those that are in need. There are global mission partners, just like we have in our church, that are in need. They're serving. They're trying to do what God's called them to do, but they need relief and they need support. And by way of example, Paul actually uses the sacrifice, the labour of love, the generosity of the Macedonians, the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. He actually gathers them and says, you know what? This group of people here, they also are in a severe test of affliction and they are in poverty themselves and yet they were begging for the favour, for the privilege and the opportunity to participate in the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul is using the Macedonian church to inspire a wealthy church in Corinth to actually partner with the gospel in discipling the nations. What does the Macedonian example teach us? It tells us that giving generously with joy is not dependent on your external circumstances. Many of us interpret joy and generosity based upon our circumstances. I got the job promotion, I got all my holidays worked out, we're going to Hawaii, fantastic. Uh, that could be a self-fulfilling prophecy, I don't know. Um, Where, you know, we've got the bank account full and, and the house is getting paid off and everything's worked out and, and, and I've got the family of my dreams, spouse of my dreams, it's all good. And so now I can be full of joy because all of my circumstances are perfect. But the Bible teaches joy in a different way. The Bible teaches joy is relational, not circumstantial. That joy is a person, it's not a circumstance. God's not against you and I having happy circumstances, but how many know happiness is different to joy? Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Who's ever faced a paradox, a contradiction where you needed the joy of the Lord to be your strength? I've faced many. I've been unwell the last few days and been thinking about the massive output of all that's um, to take place over this weekend. And I've had to find my strength and my joy, my peace, not in how I feel, but in the Lord. And I found He's faithful. 
that as we, I yield and as I say, God, I'm not up to it in my own strength, but it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by your Spirit. And it's no joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And fruits of the Spirit like joy are cultivated in an atmosphere of resistance. Can I just preach truth today? It's cultivated in an environment of spiritual warfare. It's not cultivated when everything's going perfect and everything's going well. Have you ever, you know, don't ever pray for this, by the way. Have you, but if you do, you know, this will give you some insight as to why maybe you face some resistance. If you've ever prayed for patience, have you discovered that God is committed to answering that prayer? And he gives you a circumstance and a moment where you have to be patient. And you're like, God, like, would you hurry up? And he's like, but I thought you asked me to, you know, give you patience. I'm trying to help you out and develop the character trait, the fruit of the spirit of patience. Often we say, God, I want to be, you know, joy-filled and, and, and I want to be generous, but I don't have much to give. And God says, will you be generous with the little that you have? Will you be joy-filled in the midst of the contradiction and the adverse circumstances that are coming your way? I think one of the characters in the Gospels that really helps us understand God's heart is the widow who came and brought two small copper coins into the offering box in the temple. Jesus was with his disciples and he uses all manner of things as a teaching tool to disciple uh, his, his crew. And so he's there in the temple and here is wealthy people coming and they're giving out of their abundance. And then this widow comes, this poor widow, and she gives two small copper coins. And Jesus says, hey, disciples, gather around. This is a teaching moment. And he says, listen, this widow gave more than all of those people who gave out of their abundance. He wasn't talking about the amount. He was talking about the measure of sacrifice. She gave out of her poverty. She gave everything that she had and God is coming to us today and saying, it's not about the amount you give, but it is about the spirit in which you give. It is about the measure that God calls you to partner with in sacrifice. You see, the gospel is paradox to conventional thinking. We live in an upside down, right side up kingdom. We are a part of a kingdom where Jesus says, let the poor say I am rich <clears throat> and the weak say I am strong. We live in a kingdom where God says, if you wanna live, die to yourself. That only those who lose their life will gain their life. And this is why the world by and large rejects the kingdom and Christianity because it doesn't make sense to a self-centred sin broken heart, where it's all about self. What do you mean I've got to die to myself? What do you mean I've got to lose 
to gain. Oh no, that's why you can't enter into the fullness of the kingdom unless you go through a mind change. Repentance is a renewal of our mind. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And unless you become like a little child and humble yourself and and look at Jesus with wonder and awe, you won't be able to taste and see that He's good. You won't be able to experience the fullness of what is available to you and I in the kingdom of God. And here is the Macedonians and they've got great joy and yet there is affliction and yet there is poverty and God says they're wealthy. Mind-blowing. Doesn't make sense. Why? Because we're a part of an upside-down kingdom. The Bible tells us that Jesus, though being cosmically, universally, spiritually rich in all aspects and manners, became poor so that you and I, by our His poverty, might become rich spiritually. Just think about how you and I have access to abundant grace because of the grace that God has afforded to us. Why would anybody that is under a severe test of affliction and in poverty give generously to somebody else in need? It's because giving to God's kingdom is a privilege and it reminds us that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. What, what did the, the, the verse four of this passage say? It says, you know what? In verse four, we're begging earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. A lot of people plead their victimhood. They plead their situation. And God cares, He's compassionate. He's loving, He's long-suffering. He cares about our needs and the things that we go through in our lives. But what an amazing, outstanding example. The Macedonians are begging in the midst of their poverty for the favour of being and easing somebody else's burden. You know, the same word for grace in this passage is the same word for privilege. It's the word charis in Greek. It occurs 10 times in relation to giving because giving as much as any other grace is a visible sign of God's uh, invisible grace. His divine unmerited favour at work in our lives. And it's interesting to me that grace didn't lighten the Macedonians' affliction. We don't know, we don't read that their poverty was eased because of the grace of God at work in their life, although that does happen. But this is what grace did in the Macedonians. It transformed their heart. See, many of us give enough to ease our conscience, but we don't give enough to transform our hearts. Giving, tithing is not simply about meeting the needs of the kingdom. Tithing is an act of obedience. Giving is an act of generosity that is all about transformation. I don't give alone to just meet a need. We give, my family and I give, because I want to become more like Jesus. And giving has a grace on it that not only transforms me, but meets the need and transforms other people's lives in the process. And so as we've all received abundant grace, we all get the privilege of extending God's grace to others. Now, if you were to go online to a Christian bookstore or maybe visit one like Kurong or whatever, you can see any number of wonderful book titles about how to live in the favour of God and 
how to get God's attention. And often it's very much a works mentality effort that, that's legalistic, that's about if I do one plus one plus one, that will equal three in my life. And yet grace just stuffs up the formula because God's grace is sufficient and His strength is made perfect in the weakness. And those who came through the door last still get the benefit of the blessing of those who came through the door first. So it's not based upon what you earn in your own works, but it's based upon His rich mercy and His love so that we don't boast in our own strength beyond the limits of what God has afforded and extended to us But often we're asking God to bless us, to favour us in our lives rather than what I've learned is why don't I just find out what God's blessing and favouring and join Him in that? What is God building in the earth? He's building His church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is He advancing in the earth? He's advancing His rule and reign, His kingdom. So he's already blessing his church. He's already favouring his kingdom. So if I would, Matthew 6.33, seek first in order of priority his kingdom and his righteousness, I already join myself to the blessing of God. All these other things get added as I yoke myself, hitch my wagon to what God's already blessing. If you're a business person, You've got to hitch your business to the wagon of the kingdom of God. You've got to understand that that God is only committed and authorising to building that which is of substance in His kingdom and connected to His church. This is why there's this call to plant yourself in the house of the Lord. This is why there's this call to partner with God in His kingdom economy. God is not obligated to bless your dream. He cares about the desires of your heart and the dreams in your heart. But how many of us know sometimes our dreams and desires are not of the Lord, they're of our flesh. And whilst God is committed to us and He loves us, Thank God He doesn't answer all of our desires and our faith-filled visions with blessing because maybe we get unstuck and forget about Him and our relationship with Him like Israel did when their hearts were full and their arms were strong. They forgot the precepts of the Lord. And the Lord knows the beginning from the end and He knows if I give you that which your flesh desires, you're actually gonna lose everything out in the end. But in my love and my grace and my mercy for you, I'm gonna take you on a journey of sanctification and discipleship and I'm gonna temper that desire of your heart and I'm actually gonna bring you to a place where you're so yielded that when I give you my desires and they come to life in you, I'll say yes and amen to them and watch what I will do in you and through you as you die to yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus isn't, I'm going to be healthy, wealthy and wise in this age. If that happens, you've just been given a greater platform to steward whatever God has given to you. 
to be a follower of Jesus is whatever your lot in life, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I live at your beckon and call. I'm following you. I'm leaving my nets behind. I'm burning the yoke. I'm burning the plough. I'm cutting up the cattle and I'm following you. Wherever you go, I go. And I trust that God, you will take care of me all the way. You see, everything we have, the clothes on your back, the money in your hand, the skill set, the mind, the intelligence, everything is a gift of stewardship from heaven. You should study and do your best at university, not to just get a great job so that you can have more perks in your career and have more status and achievement. You should study as hard as you could to honour the graces and gifts that God has given to you so that you would use that to further His kingdom. Business person, I pray God's blessing on you to make as much money as you possibly can, not for you and just your family, but so that you could be a greater blessing in the kingdom of God. Athletes, I pray that you will rise up in all of the graces and abilities that God has given to you and on that playing field, live for the glory and the honour of God in a self-centred, sin-saturated world. Whatever your gift is, musicians, speakers, candlestick makers, whoever you are, God has asked you to steward whatever is in your hands. For His glory and honour. What did He say to Moses? He said, what's in your hand? He didn't ask Moses, what's in Aaron's hand? He asked, what's in your hand? And many of us look through the filter of social media and we look through the filter of church life and we say, well, I don't have that and I don't have this. God didn't ask you to compare. He didn't ask you to take somebody else's stick and rod. He said, what is the stick in your hand? I'm asking you to use and to steward whatever it is that God has given to you for His glory and honour. I'm not that good at much, but there's one or two things I am good at and I'm milking that thing for all I can work. Why? Because it's for His glory and His honour. Oh, come on church today. We're having church in here right now. How about we be so countercultural in a world that is so consumed with self It's so consumed about what am I getting and how do I look through the filter on Instagram and how does this look with my peers and am I appeasing my parents' expectations of me? Oh no, mum and dad, I don't wanna study well at uni just to appease you or honour you. I wanna honour God. I wanna give my best and I'm not gonna live according to a performance orientation that says if I don't do well, my life is over. No, what can I learn from it and what can can I get better at? And how can I steward what God has given to me to make a difference in other people's lives? I'm telling you, if God can get it through you, He can get it to you. He's just looking for someone who will be a steward and a conduit of His blessing and His grace and His mercy. We have all received grace upon grace. And now He says, extend that mercy and grace to others, you and I are not owners of anything. No, the title deed will tell you, you're the owner of your property, you're not, God is. Because one day, it all goes back in the box. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and you hand this over to someone else. What are you gonna hand over? A legacy of self-centeredness, 
or a legacy of love and generosity. Because Paul said, see that you excel in this grace also. As you excel in, in earnestness of faith and speech and in the genuineness of your love, excel in this act of grace also. What's this act of grace? Giving. Your discipleship, my discipleship is not measured by what we keep. It's by what we give. That rich ruler put his feet up on the couch and said, all my barns are filled with plenty. I, I, I will just sit here and I will admire all that my hands have done and secured. And the word of the Lord comes to him on this very night, your life will be required of you. If you store up the things of this earth for yourself, and even if you've got lots of storage spaces, lots of Kennard storage, if you're storing it up for yourself and this life alone, we've tragically and cosmically missed the point of why it is that God gives us what we give. And so I want to encourage you to not just say, Jesus, wasn't it beautiful when we were saying, Jesus, I love you, or how we love you. In fact, I want us to go back into that song in a moment. But let our love be genuine because love without generosity lacks integrity. If I say to my incredible wife, my lovely wife on our wedding day, I love you, 22 years ago, I love you. But for the last 21 years 11 months and 30 something days, I, I, I don't show her any love and, and I don't sacrifice. But I, well, I told you, I told you at the old, I told you in the baptism waters I loved you. I mean, what you mean? You, there's something else that you require of me. How many of us know we're not gonna have a great marriage? When I say I love her, I also am called to lay down my life for her. And when we say we love Jesus and we love his kingdom and we love his church, there's something in our hearts that should be moved to say, you know what? Let's give generously. Let's pray. Let's give. Let's go. And so today, my call, God's call to all of us <coughs> is that we would give generously to disciple the nations, not out of what we don't have. God never asks you to give what you don't have. Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I give to you. He wasn't saying he didn't have money. He said, I don't have my wallet on me right now. Haven't been to the Jerusalem ATM. I don't have the QR code to scan right now. But what I do have is a revelation of the power of Jesus. You can only give what you have. And all of us have been given something. And we can give out of what we have with a ready and willing heart. And as we've already heard today, you can't outgive God. God always gives more back in return. Thank you for listening to Numa Church with Corey Turner. We pray that you have been blessed by today's message. Please follow us on our social media platforms and visit our website, numa.church.